From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to Movies with Mick LaSalle on the Datebook Podcast. I'm pop culture critic Peter Hartlob here with Mick LaSalle. Welcome. Oh, hi, Peter. It's good to be here. You know, you talk a little bit about Doris Day today and advanced obituaries came up without saying who you've written obituaries about already yeah. that are in the can. Yeah. Can you tell our audience a little bit how yeah. advanced obituaries work at a newspaper? Well, I won't say who I've done an obit- advanced obituary <laughs> for, but uh, they generally tend to be people who are about uh, 85 and up because even if they're in their 70s, you know, they can go another 20 years and and what we need and but of course people surprise you you know like you know things happen but generally i i probably have about 7 or 8 in the can and we when Liebe was out of there we would do them whenever Liebe saw somebody on tv looking unhealthy <laughs> and that would be that would be the occasion for it my greatest nightmare is to end up like mel gusso or or vincent canby where i'm who in the New York Times they keep on writing obituaries from the grave because they died <laughs> and then the, then the person died um, and I got very paranoid about that about a few years well about 10 or 15 years ago I guess because I wrote about Bob Hope when he was 95 and he didn't die he just kept on going and going and going and, and then another one was Ronald Reagan I did Ronald Reagan as, an, as a movie actor I did Ronald Reagan and I think he went on for another 5 or 6 years wow well that's that's a <laughs> I, I'm speechless, <laughs> Nick. I usually am not. Um, I'm just going to let our audience know that uh, you talk a lot about Doris Day. You get in an awesome rant about 84-year-old Judy Dench, cast as Shakespeare's 50-something wife in All is True. Uh, we talk about John Wick 3. Thank you for uh, bringing me back on. Yes. And another lesser-known action film in theaters right now, My Son, is it? Yeah, My Son is a French one. It's Garçon. Good. Mon Garçon. Mon Garçon. Yeah, my boy. Datebook Podcast, thanks for listening. Well, hello, everybody. This this is Mick LaSalle, and welcome to Movies with Mick LaSalle. I am here with my former editor, Leba Hertz. Hi, Leba. Hey, everyone. So this week we have some movies to talk about, and we have some movies to talk about from other in other other weeks because we haven't. Uh, I think we haven't had a podcast in a few weeks. But uh, I wanted to start off by just acknowledging that uh, Doris Day died. Yeah, uh, she was ninety-seven, I believe. She was ninety-seven. Uh, yeah, because they finally confirmed, as of a couple of years ago, that she was born in nineteen twenty-two instead of nineteen twenty-four. Mm-hmm. For a while. Uh, she was under the impression herself, genuinely under the impression, not trying to lie about her age, that uh, she was born in 1924, and then she found out otherwise. In uh, in in Liba's like weeping over here. By the way, I just want to just tell you, Liba's looking at me. There's something in her eye or something, and she's weeping, and she's giving me like these facial tableaus. She looks like Falconetti. In in the Passion of Joan of Arc over here. Do you need a tissue or something? All right. Well, as Lieber goes off to get a tissue, I just want to say that this um, this obituary, uh, just for the you, those of you who like to know how the sausage is made, was actually written. The the what appeared in the Chronicle was actually written in in um, 2014, 
at Liba's insistence, she said, uh, you know, she's she's 90 years old. Or, yeah, that's what we thought at the time. She was 92, actually. And she said, you know, it's time we wrote something. And, and one of the things that I, I just wanted to say about uh, Doris Day is that um, I think to some degree she has been rehabilitated and, and kind of understood critically. But there was a time in the 70s where Doris Day was was misunderstood as being corny and as saccharine and her reputation artistically was very much put on the road to being rescued by Molly Haskell in her great book From Reverence to Rape which was published in 1973 I believe and that's a great book it's called The Treatment of Women in the Movies and and she said that actually uh, Doris Day was kind of a feminist heroine. And that changed critical thought around Doris Day. And that a lot of, a lot of the actually making fun of Doris Day was, was, was kind of misogynistic. It was a kind of, um, I think it was a kind of resentment actually of her, the competence, competency that she always showed in, on screen. And uh, a kind of, um, you know, didn't really need the guy. But, you know, if the guy was around, that was good. And um, that, so I, when I wrote this, I'm very much following in the, in the example of Molly Haskell, who I have enormous uh, respect for. I wrote it with that in mind, and, and I was interested to see that, that many of the obituaries that were out there really didn't talk about her as, as kind of a feminist heroine, but sort of like talked about as kind of old-fashioned. And, and, of course, everybody's a product of their time. And, or at least everybody is forced to be a product of their time by their time. Uh, and she was making she was making movies in one of the worst periods of the 20th century for women in terms of their depiction on screen, the 50s, um, which was kind of a combination of prurience and puritanism. Uh, but even within that, I think that she she was a really a, just a great example of of uh, on screen of a of a woman who, you know, had it together and could function. And, and of course, in real life, you know, she was anything but this kind of, uh, you know, boring, virginal presence, the way she's always talked about. She also, too, I think if you really want to hear Doris Day, listen to her big band uh, singing from the, from, I guess, the early 40s when she was very young. I mean, her... Her song, uh, her first hit, which which is the thing that where she became known nationally, was "Sentimental Journey" with the Les Brown band, and Les Brown and his band of renown. Les Brown and his band of renown, and and have I mean, have you ever you've heard "Sentimental Journey"? Yeah. She it is, it is such a sexy, insinuating. Vocal I'd sing performance. It, but I'm sure, I would get like you know massive like protests. So. Well, yeah, and and it's Not just because, hard because to do me, it. But know. she sounds really like like this guy is going to be like when this guy gets home, it's going to be great. Or when she gets to where the guy is, it's going to like this guy has something to really look forward to. She really, it's 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 she was she was able to present just vocally a side of herself that she didn't really get to present in movies. Did oh, she, yeah. is, is her role in um, The Man Who Knew Too Much, is that the only Hitchcock heroine to actually sing a song 
as part of the plot line as well as as just singing the song? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, you know, she does the case Sarah. She sings it over and over again. And, um, it really is too much. I, I actually, case I mean, I mean, just it, it, well, I mean, it's just sort of. You know, if you take it into context with the movie, I'm like, I know there was like a, just before she died, somebody had just seen the movie, I believe, at the Castro or the Stanford Theater and complained about how awful it was. And we, there was a bunch of us saying, no, no, no. Um, think about what it was doing and, you know, giving her a major role with Jimmy Stewart in that type of, like you said, the feminist role that you yeah. didn't even think about. Well, the, 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 way, the way I like, I like, um, the thing I like about that movie is the way they kind of depict a completely dead destroyed marriage i mean he gives he drugs her without telling her uh he's a real hard guy there's something very unsentimental about the presentation of that marriage that marriage is is finished Mm -hmm. basically um and the only thing holding them together is the kid and then the kid is is uh kidnapped i think that's a good movie i used to say how great it was and i saw it recently and these things all are subject to to change but i think it's a good movie but that too much Kesara Sarah, I have to say. <laughs> By the way, uh, on the obituary, as it appears on um, uh, the, uh, the sfchronicle.com, we we don't even link to it. We actually have on on the on the obituary at the bottom. There's an interesting um, appearance of Doris Day on the Johnny Carson show in 1974. Did you see that, Lee? I don't see it. No, I didn't see the clip. Well, you really, you get to see, like, w- the career she might have had or I- if she was making movies, if she was, like, 15 years younger so that she was making her movies in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. instead of the 50s and si- early 60s um, because she is really cool. She's 52. She looks mm-hmm. just beautiful. And she's dressed in a way that's in a lot more revealing than anything she ever wore in the movies. And she just, and she has such authority. She just is really cool. Um, and then, of course, I guess you have to mention, right, the animal stuff. The animal stuff. Oh, she was, you know, big on the animals. But I was, like, thinking, like, early on in her movie career, uh, she appears in this movie as a secondary role called Storm Warning. Yeah, and in the movie it stars Ronald Reagan and Ginger Rogers, and Ronald Reagan is fighting the Ku Klux Klan, or what what would be the uh, fictional name in the movie. And Doris Day plays Ginger Rogers' sister. She's married to an abusive husband, takes all this abuse, does a really good acting job, and she gets killed. And it's the only movie she ever gets killed in. Uh, yeah, this is like in the period where she started. She was only in co-starring roles very briefly, but in it was also in that period that she. She made, I think, uh, Young Man with a Horn or whatever. That that's uh, whatever movie I forgot. Is that the name of it? I think it's Young Man. That's about yeah. Kirk Douglas. Anyway, uh, uh, Dark Day. And I the other thing is, like, we just have to mention her comedies also get a, a big. You know, at the time, everybody joked about you know her Rock Hudson Dark Day comedies. And if you go back and look at those, hold up very well. And <laughs> even <laughs> even me, so? who know. everybody knows doesn't like the Yankees, is a scene in the movie. I forgot which one it is. But all of a sudden, she's she's found sitting in the dugout with the Yankees, and I mean, it's, you're talking Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris, and she's mm. sitting there with them, kind of looking baffled. And it's a very funny little scene. And and Tony Randall's was a co-star in some of them. And the other thing, it's really good. I, I I saw Pillow Talk recently, and it's better than what I said it was in in uh, 2014 mm. in in the review. Uh, but you know, it's not enough to make me go say, mm. oh, I got to rewrite this. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's a pretty good movie of its time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the thing I find 
utterly fascinating about the movie now is watching the scenes between Rock Hudson and Tony Randall because <laughs> it is the ultimate meeting of a gay-seeming straight man and a straight-seeming gay man. I mean, if you had watched that movie and you said to people in 1961, okay, one of these guys is gay, which one is it? I don't think most people would say, oh, it's Rock Hudson, unless they knew something. And so it's really fun. And of course, they even in that movie have Rock Hudson making believe that he's gay <laughs> at one point. It's it's just so weird. I wonder what, what you just wonder what was going on in his mind. Anyway, um, so, you know, as they say, so much for Buckingham and Richard III, so much for Darcy. And, <laughs> uh, and we should also, you know, give a, sh a shout out to a TV star legend. Uh, Tim Conway passed away as well. Um, famous what, for what being, was, yeah. famous for being the side, one of those sidekicks was Carol Burnett. And I think probably the one that broke her up the most. She you know, was, yeah, he was yeah, the she one. Was, she would be doing a, a scene and supposedly straight face, and he would just either hang on or do something absolutely crazy, and she just couldn't control herself. And as a result, it made everybody laugh even more and more. I tell you, I think they, they, I think they tried to crack it. I mean, I think they tried to laugh. I, it, there's, there's a certain point where trying not to laugh becomes not funny because mm. you think they're maybe even oh. trying to laugh. Oh, I don't know. she was good at it. Um, <laughs> what, what was wrong with him? I was 85. No, no, aside from that, I mean, was he, what was his illness? Do you know? No, I, I don't know what I think, what he died from. He was okay. appearing a few years ago. He was appearing in like, um, I think he appeared, as a matter of fact, as a guest star in um, Hot in Cleveland with Betty White. Okay. Um, you know, uh, you know and of course, I also had Valerie Bertinelli and um, Wendy Malick and um, I can't think of the third, other one, Jane Leaves. So uh, I remember he sh they all showed up. All the like Carl Reiner showed up as a guest star. Tim Conway. So yeah. Anyway. Also, uh, since uh, uh, w since we last spoke mm -hmm. um, uh, in the podcast, uh, uh, my old boss Bob Graham died. Yeah, one of the great guys. Uh, just a terrific guy. I'm wondering uh, when I when I see Peter, I'm going to ask him if he knew Bob Graham. Uh, I, I have a feeling he knew him a little bit, but not that much. Uh, anyway, let's let's talk, Liba, about some of the movies that are opening this week. Uh, so let's see. Well, like for example, this this one, uh, maybe that one. You can ask me about. Yeah, that one. Um, the movie Trial by Fire. Oh yeah, that one. <laughs> is that a Clint Eastwood movie? Trial by Fire. Do you know what this movie is? No, I think oh. I read your review and I forgot all about it. Uh, <laughs> Trial by Fire is about a guy who it's it's based on a real story. It's about a guy who is put on death row for something that oh, he actually okay. did not do, and it's Jack O'Connell. Yes, I had to look up the ending. I'm afraid. Oh, uh, yeah. Did you? Oh, did you see my review? I did. I know it comes back. I and yeah. Back. Well, if you read annoying. my yeah, I tried <laughs> to do in my review. I I did a. It's a real historical event. On the other hand, it's not like Kennedy's assassination where everybody knows what happened. What happened? What? What happened? Oh yeah. No, did, can't go to Texas. It's, it's the theme <laughs> of both movies, oh. actually. Yeah, um, look out, look out in Texas. So anyway, so in in this movie, I wrote the review in such a way that you could you could figure it out if you read it. Uh, I didn't. I watched the movie and I didn't know what happens, and so I thought I was watching a different kind of movie, and I was very frustrated by it as I was watching it because they weren't making the movie that I wanted, that I that I thought that they were promising me. And so this is the rare case, even though I'm not going to reveal, I'm not going to reveal what happens, but it is a rare case of, I think the movie's better if you know what happens. 
like if you know what it's about because if you go in not knowing you just watch it and say what's this about what what's the point of this and and this is kind of depressing uh, and susan sarandon shows up at the end doesn't she and Susan Strand does not show up as a nun. No, that yeah, that would that that, that wouldn't make it better. <laughs> I don't think. I no, I don't think that would that would make it better. And then let's see, what else did we have uh, this week opening up? Uh, all is not false. Oh yeah, all <laughs> is true. Um, and do you know what that one? Leave no, oh, know. I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> okay, all is true is Kenneth Branagh's latest movie, oh. and it's about Shakespeare's later years mm. and of course nobody knows anything about Shakespeare they really don't know anything <laughs> about Shakespeare and they don't even know I mean really they're not even sure he wrote the plays and they people say they, they act as though everybody's sure but honestly they're not even that sure uh, but anyway Shakespeare returns to Stratford and and have you ever seen the house in Stratford by the way no I've never it's been there it's tiny little tiny little rooms well tiny little tiny rooms well, yeah. Anyway, so he's 49 years old. He's retiring. He's 49 years old. <laughs> and they based Branagh's makeup on on a, a portrait of a guy who might be Shakespeare, as opposed to the one guy who definitely was Shakespeare, which is the bald guy. Right? So they base him on a guy. They, they give him instead a guy in his, his 40s with a sort of slick back hair. And they give him like a, a head. He's practically wearing a helmet of skin and and so nothing moves and it looks like a sort of a bozo ridiculous thing and it's, he can't move can't move his face then they they do something with his beard that's really sharp so he looks ridiculous i the movie i'm not sure but i think the movie was written by the guys who wrote black adder and it seems like one little push away from it but my favorite is the casting as of mrs shakespeare I couldn't believe it. Okay, now, Shakespeare's supposed to be 49, okay? And it's played by Kenneth Branagh. Mrs. Shakespeare's played by Judy Dench. <laughs> right? Now, I know that Mrs. Shakespeare was was older than Shakespeare, but she was like 56. And so they, they bring out Judy Dench, and they put it to, to like make things plausible. They put her in like a red wig. <laughs> and... So it that's is where he gets insane. his inspiration for Elizabeth the First, I assume. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, it's like a like a pale red wig, uh, as opposed to a bright red wig. But it's ridiculous. So he's there with Judy Dench. Oh, William, you've come back to the house. You've been gone for twenty years, and and then she says, "You may sleep in the bedroom, <laughs> but just it's to really for, teeny, just to be friends." I said, "I." Oh, it's it's so ridiculous. And, I bet you're so teeny. <laughs> and you, you see him, and it's like, I mean, I mean, she's it. The, the pairing of those two is ludicrous. First off, they just they look insane together. Then the whole story builds on how uh, Shakespeare is grieving over his son's death. Now, admittedly, when bad things like you lose a son or something happens, you you know you never get over it. That is true, but. He's grieving over it like it just happened, and it happened 17 years earlier. The other thing that he's grieving about is that his son could have been a great writer, he thinks, based on a few poems. And this I can tell you with absolute certainty. The only people who dream about their sons becoming a great writer are people who are not writers. 
because a father would not grieve over his son's lost potential as a writer. He would grieve over the kid being dead. And that's it. Because writers, people who write, know that people are so much more than the things they write, even if they're really great. Really, they're really great at it. Uh, it's sort of like um, my father was a great athlete before he gained 50 pounds and you know smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. But he was when he was a young man, he was actually a great athlete. He got a scholarship to go to St. John's College for basketball. Wow. And he was also How a great... How tall was he? He was only 5'10". Wow. Yeah. What, I assume what you, he played guard. So you're looking at me and you're saying, wow, but <laughs> Toulouse-Lautrec's father was on a basketball team. How did that happen? Anyway, um, but my father, uh, when I was a kid, you know, he would... G- g- play sports with me you know do things and and he very quickly figured out, figured out that I was a stiff that I just wasn't very good athletically he couldn't care less because he could do it himself and he had a completely unsentimental attitude towards this thing that he could do because he, he had even though he wasn't a professional he had a kind of a professional's eye a writer has that thing the people who are sentimental about writing are not writing writers Writing is something else. And for a father to be obsessed with his son becoming a writer is, I don't believe that for a minute. And and then where they take it from there becomes more and more ridiculous. So it's a if you watch it as a comedy, it's not satisfying because there's not enough things to really snicker at. But it really is, it's kind of bad. Yeah, it's bad. Um does he talk like Shakespeare? Does he talk with thou art Alice goest to this? Or does he talk like, like with a regular modern day British? Uh, I guess somewhere in between. Uh, thou goest yeah, art it's, thou. It's definitely, yeah, because you, if you push that too far, it becomes funny. <laughs> did you ever see, did you see, did you see Amy's, my wife, Amy's play, A Beard of Avon? When it was here? Which one? Beard of Avon. Never saw Beard of Avon. Uh, oh, that was I a really, good one. And, and, yeah, it was about Shakespeare. Yeah, no, and I, I, I did see, um, um, I, um, not like zero. Oh, you Nero. You Nero, and the one about the restoration. Oh yeah, that's and that's the, good. And one. the one that the master builder. Oh, so you've okay. Sorry. I didn't see the other one. I would like to. Oh, see. the reason was because I was thinking because of all his truths yeah. about Shakespeare. Okay, so uh, mm, we got another one. Yeah, let's see. What's the name of this thing? I'm trying to remember. It's something. It's my son. If you put all in front, you'd have an Arthur Miller play. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because all, all his truths above it on the list, <laughs> and. Um, and uh, it's, it's called Mon Gasson, mm, en français. Mon Garkin, Garkin, Garkin. Sorry, that's my French. But it's a, I, I don't have to go into a whole big thing about it. Uh, the only reason why I went into a whole big thing about all is true is because it's funny. Uh, but my son is, um, is a solidly pretty good French thriller about a guy who's a divorced guy, gets a phone call from his hysterical wife saying their kid has disappeared while at camp. And so he has to try to find the kid. And he's an architect, but he, you know, becomes Superman, starts beating up everybody. It's it's kind of the usual American pattern. But what I like about it, because it's a French movie, it's uh, it has some of the virtues of French movies. And by the way, French movies they don't all have all the, the French characteristics. I mean, they're not all they're not all positive. There's some bad French characteristics, mm-hmm. but I don't want to go into this. This movie has all the good French characteristics. It's very interested in human relationships. It's uh, it's um, and it and the French have an attitude towards this kind of movie, which I wish more Americans would. They get in and they get out. They just do it. Like for example, that horrible movie um, with uh, Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie. The tourist. 
The Tourist. Horrible movie. Goes on for like 125 minutes. That movie was originally a French movie. 80 minutes long and great. Absolutely fun, great movie. Um, and this movie is like 80 minutes long. Somebody will probably make it, you know, they'll, they'll remake it in the United States and they'll make it boring. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyhow, that's, that's that for this week. And then uh, I understand that Peter saw John Wick. Next time I run into him, maybe I'll, I'll ask him about it so he can tell me uh, what he thought of it. And... Um, Oh, hold that. Oh, I see oh, an apparition. Look, just came I in. actually was just coming in here to uh, see if Leba needed more it's tissue. Heart lob. <laughs> needed more contact lens solution. <laughs> Thank you. I do, actually. <laughs> uh, John Wick 3. You saw John Wick 2. I In my yeah. research for John Wick 3. <laughs> uh, we do intense I, research. I, I did look up your review for John Wick 2, and I know you're not a fan. I love John Wick 1. That was the movie. That was one of like three or four movies that haunt me. Yeah. Oh, haunt? as much as a top 10 list should yeah. haunt any person, I critic or otherwise. Yeah. Um, I made my top 10 list that year and then saw John Wick and just thought it was one of the greatest action films I had seen and wish I had it there. Oh, wow. So I love John Wick. I never, I never saw the first one. John Wick 2, not as good. Yeah. Um, and I agreed with your points. As often happens, I disagree with your little man but i agree with your points i mean i just think we saw the same movie but have but, different reactions. yeah no no sometimes like you, you see the same movie uh, yeah sometimes i'll like rev- i'll read somebody else's review and i'll agree with everything they say but i just care less about the things that they cared about either positively or negatively so it's like you could read my bad review and say all right yeah he's right about that but who cares there's this other thing is yeah. that like that yeah, yeah yeah very much like that yeah. and, and uh uh, and and Wick three was uh, you would have hated it. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, you would have hated it. It, it kind of Wick one, John Wick one. His dog is killed. It's very simple. His dog is killed. Aww. His wife had died of cancer and gave him the dog so that he could rebuild himself. And he's a hitman who's bought his way out of the hitman life. Somebody kills his dog and steals his car, and he spends the rest of the movie just destroying the mob and mafia that did that. I kind of, well, the way you describe it, that sounds pretty good. It's good. <laughs> it's clean. It's a lean action film. Reminds me of like a good Luc Besson type film yeah, yeah, yeah. where, you know, by the third one, it's all the things that were the world building in it have become the entire thing. And it's almost like watching, I, I compared it to Harry Potter. And people may disagree with that, but it's as much of a fantasy as Harry Potter. I mean, there's this this colonial, it's the Continental Hotel in the middle of Manhattan where it's a combination of like... What street? I'm not sure, but it's, it's, it's a good street. And uh, it's a combination of like, it looks like the holodeck from Star Trek. And then other parts of it look like like 15th century medieval library. Oh, the old Americana. And it makes no economic sense. All the hitmen go to this hotel and then kill each other. We don't know how they make <laughs> money. Uh, he goes to like Tunisia and meets Halle Berry, who has these like martial arts attacking dogs. We don't know why. But all the choreography is still good. The action's good. The John Wickness of it is still good. Um, so That sounds great. You would have hated it. Mm-hmm. it but it's I would good hate. that... Yeah, yeah, it worked out. It worked out. It worked out. Win-win. Worked, yeah, win worked out for everybody, uh, yeah. including the readers. You know, <laughs> yeah. because the people who who are reading about John Wick are the people who are interested in John Wick. I mean, who who saw that maybe the first one or two and liked it. Yeah. yeah. So, 
All right, so Liba, what else? We did? we had a couple of big movies from weeks past, maybe that we can just mention. One was called a, The Hustle. Oh, yeah, bad. Bad? Oh, my goodness, so bad. Yeah, Rebel Wilson and oh, Anne Hathaway. Oh, the one that's the, the uh, remake of um, two movies, actually. Yeah, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was and the, the one And the one with, the one with uh, Marlon Brando and uh, Michael Caine, wasn't Yeah, that's it? the one. No, no, Michael Caine was the one with, with, with Steve Martin. Steve Martin. What was Marlon Brando's co-star? I don't know. Because I didn't even know about somebody I think it was mentioned Olivia to me. Olivia or somebody like that? Oh, somebody, Olivia. That would be good. Somebody like that. Yeah, well, anyway, this this one is terrible. Oh, David Niven. It was David oh, David Niven. Niven. It was oh, okay. Marlon Brando and David Niven. Oh, that would be fun. Mm-hmm. Was, that, like, was that a comedy? Yeah, but Marlon Brando's not that great at comedies. So. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he's funny, but he's not intentionally funny. Yeah. But it was supposed uh, to be a comedy. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, Rebel, Rebel Wilson. Funny. Rebel Wilson has been funny in movies, but usually in the capacity of of a co-star. And I, I don't know what happened in this this one, but wow, she's terrible. I mean, she's really like amazingly not funny, and enough so that you start you identify with Anne Hathaway, who wishes that she would disappear, and you start wishing that she would disappear from the movie. But she's supposed to be the one that you can't wait to see. Um, I think that she was allowed by the director to just just hit every comic moment with a sledgehammer to the point where it just wasn't funny. It was just overdone. Uh, the guy who directed it is actually a funny comedian. You ever see the movie? You ever see the TV show The Thick of It? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, well, uh, by the maker of The Veep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. Also the maker of, um, of uh, Death of Stalin. Right. So on Thick of It, um, the guy who plays Ollie, the young aide, mm-hmm. um, is, is the director of this. So he's a funny guy, but I don't know. He either, he either directed her to tank the movie or he didn't realize she was tanking the movie and let her, let her you know, go too far. I don't know what. I also it's heard that Anne Hathaway didn't know she had to have a British accent until she arrived on set, and I hear the British accent's pretty bad. Yeah, but I don't care about that. And she... You know, because that's all right. You know, that mm. you can just forgive that, and and I wouldn't even notice it. Mm. To me, at all, you know, I notice Brits doing American accents and find and, and notice how funny they sound sometimes, but I don't notice the other way around. And but it doesn't strike me. The little accent stuff yeah. doesn't bother me. But and and she's she's more funny than yeah. Rebel Wilson, but she doesn't have the funny role, so it's just garbage, yeah. just bad. But then we come, and this is one I did see, so I can say oh, you something. Saw it. It's called Long Shot. Oh, you tell me you thought think of Long Shot. I liked it a lot. I actually tweeted out that I kind of thought it was a screwball comedy of the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. You know, it had you know, it, it just, I just, you know, it, it had all the makings of being a big failure if you think about it. Yeah. Um, I wish he would have shaved that beard. You mean Seth Rogen? Yeah, because he's making, he's kissing. You know, he's he's mm. he's, he's kissing. Well, Charlize his- Theron is such an underrated actress even though she's won Oscars people don't realize her range is no, she's really great. big but but there's something you know there's something about so we should give a plot quick plot of it oh yeah well, well she's running for president and he's writing her speeches basically I mean she's not running for president yet she's setting a presidential campaign and she's going on a tour as secretary of state and she's pretty awful I mean the <coughs> personality where she's pretty like snooty and snobby oh, and I very think she's ambitious great. I mean that's how it's, that's the role that's I, the part she's supposed oh, I to like, be I like those people like that I know but, I'm saying, but that's what I'm just saying so that's that's sort of you know and he's a sweet guy who knew her when she was yeah, but very young so it's kind of a almost yeah but she, he's kind of a schlub and, and yeah, she's exactly. actually somebody who could actually do something 
thing. Yeah, so exactly. I, I thought she was so, really great. But you also see the transformation of her warming up and stuff like well, that. Well, you know, yeah, it's, a, it's a, yeah, in a sense, it's like a lot of romantic comedies. They both yeah. can learn something from each other, just like Buddy yeah. Pictures, the role yeah. about people can learn things yeah. from each other. And, in, and, and this is set against an interesting background. She's doing this global warming tour of various countries, but she's really... In addition, trying to save the planet, she's trying to get herself elected president. But meanwhile, she's a little, she's on kind of a tight leash, or actually, it would be tighter in real life, because the president in this in this example is a complete moron, uh, but doesn't seem based on anybody specific, oh, yeah, except played by maybe the concept of moron. Uh, Odenkirk. Bob, Bob Odenkirk. Yeah, Bob Odenkirk. Who's you know, he's kind of a combination of of a few presidents in this, but also he's his own thing. But the one thing is that he's he's a, actually he's a former actor who played a president on television, <laughs> as opposed to like playing a businessman <laughs> on television. Um, but uh, and it seems like he, the way they talk, it seems like he's a Republican because um, he's in bed with the new. The, there's a one news station that has like a Fox and Friends set up, and and, and um, it's called Wembley TV. But it's clearly like a right wing thing, and and so I don't know what Shelley Steeren is doing in that administration exactly. But the the political lines are not drawn, you know, that clearly. But it, it's sort of like a a kind of a fantasy or like a riff on current American life, and that forms the background for what is essentially, in terms of structure, a pretty normal romantic comedy about people learning from each other. Um, but it's I it's really good. I found myself laughing out loud. I was laughing out loud too. I just wish he would have shaved the beard, just because <laughs> he looks so. He just. I thought he looked actually pretty good for Seth Rogen, who can be very schlubby looking. And I thought he was schlubby, but not as schlubby as usual. But he's like Kevin. He kind know. of he kind of lost some weight here, and you know, I, I thought he looked kind of good. I don't know. You know, I don't. It, it look. All these people in romantic comedies, they are surrogates for you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, and and so they. Each person for uh, a heterosexual audience, each one of the actors is, you know, serves two functions. They're, a, they're an object of fantasy to some degree, in a small way. But they're an object of, of not fantasy, that's, that's too strong a word, romantic projection uh, for the, the opposite sex person. But then they are also kind of surrogates for the... For their own sex, so that I'm watching this, and and I'm you know saying, oh, Charlie Theron, you know she that that's a very impressive woman, you know to you know she she is really somebody who deserves somebody great, and of course the person she always deserves in the part of the audience where the audience psychology works, the person that she deserves is me, <laughs> you know whoever me is watching. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And but I don't think that there's a me too much. For, you know, got much, there's much me participation with Seth Rogen looking like just like kind of a slob in this. But unless women like Seth Rogen, I don't know. I mean, for me, it would be Paul Newman is my like, you know, I should get Paul Newman in any movie he makes. Doesn't matter what. Movie. Exactly. That's how it works. But I mean, I just want I just want Seth to like maybe just make a little bit of an effort, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, just like just just buy, a, you know, a better shirt, you know, just something. <laughs> You know, to just run a comb through his hair a little bit, and maybe lose the beard. Maybe you know. I think maybe. the beard actually made him more more handsome. Because without okay, the beard, well, he kind of looks a little kind of um, 
don't know. Just schlubby More schlubby. Uh, well, yeah. Well, anyway, the movie works anyway. Uh, that's just, you know, this is a very minor thing, but it's a really good movie. Anyway, so I think we've come to, we've, you've, you've wasted a perfectly good hour on car talk. <laughs> so uh, we're ready to go. Do you have anything to add, Leba? I think that's about it this week. That's about it last about week. About them Mets. And about them Mets. How are the Mets doing? They're not doing terrible. Where are they? They're actually, they just won three straight, and they're like three and a half out of first in the Eastern Conference. Are they in second place? Third. Third. The Braves are ahead of them, and then the Phillies Braves are always first. are. Phillies Braves, are first. Braves always are. All right. Well, with that in mind, we just lost them anyway. Let's we pretend <laughs> they're still here. Okay. So anyway, for... Thanks, everybody. We'll be back. And uh, for the San Francisco Chronicle, I'm Mick LaSalle. And I'm Lieber Hertz. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Mick LaSalle and Lieber Hertz. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke, and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is Mozart Symphony 40 in G minor by Blue Dot Sessions. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with Ness.